Uh, this morning, we are continuing on in our series in James, uh, Faith at Works. This is our penultimate message, uh, so our second last week, if you don't know what that means. Um, so we have this week, uh, and then TJ is going to be looking at verses 19 to 20 next week. Sorry for my sarcasm, it's too early in the morning for that. Uh, so that will be us. We're going to finish James in two weeks' time, God willing. Um, and then we have our missions week, and we're going to be moving into our, our summer sermon series through July and August. So we're, we're picking up pace. Uh, I hope you're encouraged that all that we have looked at in James uh, and all that we're going to be looking at in the next uh, week or so. Um, so be blessed as we take time to look at God's Word today. Be challenged by it as well, as I've been challenged over this last week as, we t- as I've taken time to study and prepare for today. Our focus is James 5 and verses 13 to 18. So I'm reading from a CSB, Christian Standard Bible, and the words are going to be up on the screen as well. So James says this, starting in verse 13. Uh, Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain in the land. Then he prayed again and the sky gave rain and the land produced its fruit. Amen. So Father, this is your word. And again, we just come before you today and and ask that as you have have ministered to us through worship, as you have spoken to us through our time of prayer, Lord, we ask that you would now speak directly into our hearts through your spirit and your word as we unpack what this passage says. Lord, be with me as I share. Give me freedom. Direct my path. Open up our hearts and minds to what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, You might remember last week, um, as I was sharing before uh, Ramsey uh, came and spoke, um, I'd mentioned the fact that as we worship together, uh, as we do that uh, every single week, um, every tribe and every tongue will one day be together uh, in heaven. And with one voice, we will declare that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's something that we can look forward to in anticipation of all that God has planned for us. And that was an interesting Sunday because fast forward to after the service, uh, during lunch, a number of us were meeting uh, for our preaching cohort. Uh, We basically meet together uh, and every month we go through Tim Keller's book, Preaching. And it's really a way in which we can sharpen each other, encourage one another, Um, and really understand more and more of what it means to be effective when it comes to preaching the word of God, what I'm doing right now. And so we're sitting around this table, having a really healthy lunch. (laughs) Uh, And this guy on the other table pipes up just beside us, and he says to Neil, can I ask what you're reading? And Neil says to him, it's it's preaching by Tim Keller. Um, And then he asks, born again? Uh, And it felt like we all said this in unison. We all went, born again? (laughs) And then he starts to point to other guys in his table and he says, born again, born again. And he says, we're preachers. We're actually part of a group that go around the UK 
uh, and we preach to different gypsy communities. There's 34 locations in the UK and, and we do that. And it got us chatting for a wee bit. And from that moment, I was reminded, we were reminded afresh uh, that it's not just about us. It's not really about us at all. Um, God doesn't look at the mission of Scotland and think that the entire responsibility of, of the evangelization of the nation of Scotland rests solely in Denison Baptist Church. Um, he uses a wide and varied body that is his church to fulfill the mission that he has called us to. And what's incredible is that when that mission is complete, every tribe and every tongue, including all of those who are sitting on each of those tables in Dunya, will declare that Jesus is Lord. It's an incredible thought. And all of that should bring, should bring great humility to our hearts as we think about what God might do in and through us within the context of here, Denison Baptist Church. And what I'm sharing with you this morning is really the, the heart of our seventh love in our membership covenant. We love the future. We are a people who love the future. And this is something I want us for a moment just to unpack and look at again, because it's so easy for us to forget all that we've agreed, as I've said in the last few weeks. This is part of our bigger membership covenant. This is a seventh love. Uh, we are deeply encouraged by the truth that this life is not the end. God has prepared a place for us in eternity, a new heaven and a new earth, John 14, 1 to 3. We love the future because we will be with Jesus, amen, enjoying him forever. This compels us to be who he calls us to be today. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9. What, what I always find encouraging when we have these little moments, and I think we've all, we can all testify to moments where this has happened. We randomly bump into other believers and, and then never see them again. But it's all a fresh reminder for myself and hopefully for all of us that this world, this earth is not our home. Uh, when we meet other believers in these one-off random, random moments, it's not the last time that we will see them again. We will see them again. And I can never say for definite because I don't know what's going on in people's hearts, but the likelihood of, of the individuals in those two tables meeting again is very, very strong. Um, and so let's just rejoice for a moment. Let's just take stock of the fact that we will all, day, we will all one day be in Christ's presence and together we will see Jesus. We will talk with Jesus. We will walk with Jesus and we will ever increasingly know Jesus in eternity in heaven. Let's just take a moment to reflect on that. What a joy that is uh, for us. And all of this then brings us onto what we're looking at this morning. We're thinking about a praying faith. So as we think about eternity in heaven and this incredible joy that every tribe and every tongue will one day worship Jesus, let's for a moment think about what it means to talk to God. A praying faith. Prayer at its heart is the essence of what it is we're going to do in eternity. This is going to be characteristic. We're going to commune with God every single day. And I'm really challenged by that. Because if, if I'm someone, if you're someone who doesn't pray and who doesn't meet with God here on earth, the reality is that heaven will not be heaven to us. Heaven will not be heaven to us. There is nothing more topsy-turvy and upside down than the fact that in heaven, one of his central features will be us worshipping God, seeking him, praying to him, meeting with him. And yet here on earth, we and other churches will struggle sometimes to get more than two people to meet for a short time of prayer. 
Such a contrast. What, we, what happens here on earth should be a reflection of what God one day has planned for each one of us. And in this passage, James wants us to really encourage us. So hopefully this, this message ought to always be a, a message of encouragement and challenge. But this is what James is trying to do. He wants to encourage us in our prayer life and give us the purpose of our praying faith. He wants, he wants us to see why it is we should pray. Why should we pray? And connected to that purpose is when we should pray. So James is really unpacking for us why we should pray and when we should pray. And he provides us with three scenarios for when it is we, sh we should seek God's presence and how we should seek him. And the first two are, are pretty short. The third one is, has a lot more detail to it. So scenario one, we should seek God in prayer when suffering. When suffering. And it's the first part of verse 13. <clears throat> is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. This is what James says. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Sounds so simple. If you're suffering, pray. And the reason it sounds so simple is because it is that simple. If you're suffering today, if you're finding life difficult, if you're feeling overwhelmed, then your first response, not your second or your third or your fourth response, your first response has to be prayer. Has to be. You know, I feel like I've, I've said that on a number of occasions as we've dug into James each and every week. It's a theme that he touches on again and again and again and again. The importance of seeking God in the midst of our suffering. And most likely James doesn't go into much detail. In fact, very little detail about what this kind of prayer looks like. Because he's already mentioned it before in James. But he was also familiar with a particular example of someone who responds in a certain way when they suffered. In fact, most likely James knew that they, the people he was writing to, also knew of this example. And so, and so much so that when he says to them, pray when you suffer, which is essentially what he says in the first part of verse 13 here, this example most likely came to their mind as it came to his mind. When you suffer, pray. It's the example of his big brother, the story of Jesus in Gethsemane. Have a look at Matthew 26 and verses 36 to 39. This is, this is the example. When it, when it comes to suffering and when it comes to how we should respond, this is the example for us. So Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. Then Jesus came, came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he told the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking along Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little further, he fell face down and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. And in verse 42, we read this. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Now, Denison Baptist Church, it is vitally important that we take heed of what Jesus uh, was facing here and how Jesus responds to what it is he's facing. In fact, Luke gives us more detail about what actually happened in this moment. And he highlights the connection between the suffering that Jesus faced and his own prayer life. So we read in Luke 22 and verse 44, and I think it might be up on the screen. Yeah. Uh, being in anguish, 
Jesus. He prayed more fervently and his sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. So picture this. Jesus was so overwhelmed with what he was about to face that his sweat became like drops of blood. He was in a moment of extreme tension. As Jesus' suffering increased, as he looked ahead to the prospect of dying on the cross for our sins, how did he respond? He prayed more fervently. So as his suffering increased, his prayer life increased. And I have to ask myself, as I ask each one of us today, if the Son of God had to pray more fervently when he suffered intensely, who am I to think that I can that I, I can do something separate from that. That I can respond in a way that is outside what Jesus does here within this passage. Surely it's the case that as Jesus suffered and prayed, when I suffer, I also need to pray. Surely that's the case for each one of us today. And I love how James keeps it so simple for us within these words. And it's something we'll look at later on in the passage. If you're suffering... Simply pray and pray to God from the heart. There's a right way and a wrong way to pray. And, and what James is getting at here within these verses and later on is that we pray with all that we are. It's from the heart. It's not just this kind of intellectual, superficial thing. We pray from the heart. And we look to God as we pray. And we believe in God's word as we pray. And we trust in God as we pray. It's not about a formula. It's not about the words you use. It's not about having a prayer voice. Some Christians have a prayer voice. It's kind of weird. It's meeting with the only one who can help you in your trouble. So pray, pray from the heart. That's my encouragement to you. And it's as simple as that. Pray. So that's the first scenario. The second scenario we find in the second half of verse 13. Scenario two. We pray when we're cheerful. When cheerful, um, have a look at what we read in this verse. Is anyone cheerful? <clears throat> he should sing praises. He should sing praises. Now it's interesting when we look at these two commands given by James in verse 13. In light of these two particular scenarios, when James says if you're suffering, then you should pray. And it's not just that you and I should talk to God. It's that you and I should keep talking to God. This, this verb that, that James uses here is continuous. We keep talking to God. We keep praying. We keep praying. We should keep pouring our heart out to God in the midst of the suffering that we face. And when James says here, if you're cheerful, you should sing praises. The Greek word that James uses is the English equivalent of the word psalm. Psalm. And it basically means this. When we are cheerful, we should sing songs that exalt the name of God. So avoid any worship songs that focus on yourself. Sing songs that exalt the name of God, that look to him and give him all the glory. But more than that, we should also, like the first command here, we should keep doing it. It's not like we do it for two minutes and then just move on. We should keep singing and singing and singing and rejoicing and rejoicing. And this is one of the few scenarios where smartphones are a blessing because we have a music app, Apple Music, Spotify, and we can use that as a means from which we can worship God. So keep singing songs that exalt the name of God, Psalms, as we continue to be cheerful. So in our cheerfulness, and our joy, sing. And it will cultivate more cheerfulness. 
and more joy. And it's not what James is saying in some strict authoritarian way. You have to sing. If you're cheerful, then you sing. Because that would help no one. Um, and you would very quickly become the most annoying person in your house if you were doing that. And that includes all of you who live on your own. <laughs> um, what James wants us to get at is that a cheerful heart response with spirit-filled praise that brings glory to God for who they are and in the midst of their particular circumstances. So if you have a cheerful heart, let the Spirit direct your heart towards a place where you sing praises to Him. This doesn't mean uh, that cheerfulness is exclusively connected to prosperity or success or favor or blessing. That's not what, what James is getting at here. Uh, like our cheerfulness and peace is dependent on our circumstances. James doesn't mean that. We, we see that in James chapter 1. But it does mean that whatever we find ourselves in the middle of, whatever that might be, God can grant us joy and cheerfulness. And so James encourages us to then sing. So whatever we find ourselves in, we can find ourselves in a place where we respond to that situation, good or bad, with cheerfulness that then leads to song. And it's important we note that the same Greek word for cheerfulness is also used by Paul in Acts 27. And it's translated courage in Acts 27, or peace of mind. And Paul says it twice to these individuals who are on his boat and in the middle of a storm. So Paul says this to the crew, and he says, be cheerful, take courage, have peace of mind, as we're, as we're about to embark upon a pretty heavy and difficult storm. And that's a metaphor for our own lives. We can still be cheerful in the midst of a storm, but it's a work of God in our lives. So take heart. Even in our storms, we can be cheerful. We can have courage. We can have peace of mind. And if that's the case, there's great encouragement here from James to sing praises to God, to lift his name high, to fix our eyes upon him, not to look up on ourselves, not to look at our circumstances, but to rejoice in the one who saved us and who leads us every day. So James's point here, in the entirety of verse 13, so we've just done one verse here, guys. And the entirety of verse 13 can most likely be reflected in the words of Martin Luther. So Luther said this, there's no time in which God does not invite us to himself. Let me say that again. There is no time in which God does not invite us to himself. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So however you find yourself this morning, I know we all walk into a Sunday morning with all sorts of different circumstances. The invitation is there to bring God into whatever it is you find yourself in the middle of today. Bring God into it. No matter your circumstance, will you choose today to pray to him, to sing to him, to thank him, to rest in him? Will you do it? Will you choose to bring God into whatever it is you face today? This is a bread and butter of the Christian life. And I wonder if it would take a simple message like this one for you and I to go into this week with that kind of renewed heart attitude. And all of which brings us on to the third scenario. And, and many would argue this is, this is James's focus within this passage. And we're going to spend most time eh, on this. So scenario three, when sick, <clears throat> when sick. Um, and to understand James's heart for this particular scenario, we're going to look again just at verses 14 to the first part of verse 16. So James says this, Is anyone among you sick? 
he should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save a sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So suffering is the first one. Cheerfulness is the second one. And the final one is sickness. Sickness. This is the third scenario that James wants us to think about as we connect this scenario to prayer and the importance of prayer. And when I look at these words, I can't help but think back uh, to a church that I know and love, uh, an evangelical church, uh, brethren in its roots, something I shared at our missional community last week. Uh, Functionally, they were cessationist. In other words, they do not believe that the, the the supernatural spiritual gifts are for today. So they function in that way. And yet a number of years back, there was a much-loved lady in the church who had cancer. The prognosis was, was very serious. It didn't look good. And the elders of the church were invited over. And what did they do? They directly applied the words of James 5 and verses 14 to 16. They met with her. They brought oil. They anointed her with oil. They prayed over her and for her that she would be healed. And that was 15 years ago. 15 years later, she's still alive. She's in good health. God, without question, did a miracle and healed her. And I mention that story as as a warning uh, for all of us, as an encouragement, first and foremost, but also uh, as a warning that we can approach these words of James 5 and we can approach these words carrying our tradition uh, or holding on to our previous experience or having a firm conviction about what, what we believe to be true around the subject of healing when it comes to whether or not God still heals today. Or, like these elders, we can approach God's word with honesty, with openness, and we simply do what God's word instructs us because it's, it's obvious to me this is what we should do. It's from his word that is so clear. And you know, this story would still be valid if this lady was not healed. Uh, the key is that they responded faithfully. These elders responded faithfully to the word of God, what God's word had taught them when someone wasn't well. So the result, in one sense, is irrelevant. What's important in this moment is that these elders, this example I'm giving to you, these elders responded to God's word with obedience. So this would be my heart for us this morning, uh, that we wouldn't come into this subject with any kind of agenda from past experience or current conviction, but instead we would have an open heart to what God's word actually says. And then we would faithfully do what God's word says. And when it comes to this subject of healing and the supernatural gifts, a number of theologians have identified what can be two equal and opposite errors towards uh, our response, when it comes to our response to healing um, and how it is we should pastorally act in these moments. Uh, The first wrong way in which we can respond is this. We can have an under-realized expectation when it comes to a particular spiritual gift an underrealized expectation. In other words, we believe that none or very little of what God has prepared for us in heaven can be experienced by God's people here on earth. Let me say that again. We believe that none or very little 
of what God has prepared for us in heaven can be experienced by God's people here on earth. And if that is us, then we would say something like this, and I've heard this many times, God does not heal today. You will be healed when you get into heaven, and that's true. The first part is the part I would take issue with. God does not heal today. You'll be healed when you get to heaven. So that's the first error. And the opposite extreme of that would be those who carry an over-realized expectation with regards to the spiritual gift of healing. In other words, they believe that all or most of what God has prepared for us in heaven can be experienced here on earth. So it's the opposite end. And if that's us, we would say something like this. God does heal today. And all we have to do is claim his healing power and promise for ourselves and for ours. And both are wrong for completely different reasons. One doesn't go far enough and the other goes too far. So what is the response? What is the response? How is it that we should go to this topic of healing and understand who, who God is, who God has called us to be, and how it is we should then respond to this topic of healing pastorally within the context of a local church? Well, put simply, my conviction about healing is this, we're called to take God at his word. It's, it's pretty simple. And so in James, he calls the church family to invite the elders of the church to pray. Um, and if that's what we should do, if that's what James says we should do, then we should do it. Uh, when James calls the elders to anoint with oil, and whatever that might look like for us as a church, and we'll look at that in a minute, don't worry, uh, that's what the elders of the church should do. If that's what James in God's word, if God's word tells us to do this, then that's what we should do. When James calls the elders of the church to pray over the sick person, then that's what we should do. We should pray over those who are sick. And when James calls us all as a church body to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another, then as a church, that's what we should do. It's as simple as that. And this is what we should do, safe in the knowledge that it is God and only God who determines the outcome. So we know what we have to do. All we have to do is obey the word of God, and it is God who determines the outcome, whether or not someone is healed. Denison Baptist Church, <clears throat> this should bring great encouragement uh, to you, because it takes the pressure off you. It completely takes the pressure off you. The responsibility that you have in your prayers for others, including your prayers for those who are sick, it's never dependent upon you and what you have done or what you ought to do. The responsibility that you have in your prayers for others, including healing, is always connected to the life and work of Jesus. It's as simple as that. So that's a bit of a foundation for us as we look at these verses. Let me just share with you four key components to God at work in healing power in the context of a local church, as we find it in these verses in James. And let me, sh let me say as I share these, not all of these have to be at play in order for God to heal someone, but without question, some of these components are at play. Sometimes all of them, but not all the time. The first one is this, the role of elders. The role of elders. And it's so obvious from the text in this passage, and this passage is the reason you know, at the end of every sermon, you'll, you'll be aware of this if you've been here uh, for a, a short time or a long time. At the end of, of every single one of my sermons, 
I invite you to come and, and to ask uh, for, for prayer if, if you're ill or sick um, and you would, you would want to be healed. Then at the end of, of every message, I open up that invitation to receive prayer, um, whether it's for myself or TJ or Paul or someone else. And it's important you guys know that the reason I do that is because of this passage, because of James 5. It's so clear that the role, one of the, the roles or responsibilities of an elder is to pray for those who are sick. It's obvious. Um, it's important we also know that this is not the only way that God displays his love for us. Uh, because sometimes God chooses not to heal. But without question, it is one of the ways in which God displays his love for us. Sometimes one of the greatest acts of love that God does for us is to not answer our prayers, including our prayers for healing. And we don't necessarily have the answer to why that is on this side of eternity. But we trust God and rest in him and know that he is sovereign over all. And James mentions the elders here to highlight that this is one of our responsibilities. So I'm just preaching to myself and TJ right now. <laughs> and it's not to say that, that TJ and I or Paul are the, are the healers in the church at this moment in time. It's not like we walk about with healer over our heads. That would be kind of weird. In fact, I wouldn't say that there, are, there is ever a biblical scenario when anybody in the context of a local church could be looked upon and identified as a healer. I wouldn't say that. And we see that from 1 Corinthians 12 in the gifts list. And I want us just for a moment to look at this because notice it in verse 9. And we see this also in the context of Acts. But in verse 9, as Paul is going through the list of the different spiritual gifts, he says something really interesting. He says, To another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit. And there's plurality of these healing gifts. It's not just a gift, it's gifts. And it means that not one single person has a healing gift all the time. If that was the case, they could just walk into hospitals and start praying over people and healing them. Instead, to keep us humble, to keep us focused on Jesus, God will grant the gift of healing to a particular person at a particular moment for a particular person and for a particular purpose. And it brings glory to him. It doesn't, it doesn't result in the person who's been prayed for looking upon that person and causing them to give glory to them. It causes them to give glory to God. And so elders are therefore to pray healing over, over their congregation um, on an individual basis, one-on-one, -on -one, as a shepherd might help an injured sheep uh, or as a dad would support his sick son or daughter. It's a way in which we can express the responsibility we have to care for the flock that God has given to us. And ultimately, it's God who will determine whether or not this will come to pass, as I've said already. It's God who determines it, not us. So I hope we see this morning what it is that God's word says here with regards to the role of elders and healing. And I hope you'll be encouraged to seek us. Have, have the courage privately to, to talk to us if you are ill, to speak with us. If whatever pain, illness, ailment you might have, speak with us. We count it a tremendous privilege to pray with you and for you and ask that God would heal you in Jesus' name. And again, it's not so that much can be made of Paul or TJ or myself, 
so that God can get all the glory and the church family can all be edified in the midst of that. So that's the first component when it comes to healing prayer, elders. Number two, <clears throat> the role of oil. I'll just skip this one, is that okay? <laughs> um, yesterday I had lunch with a friend uh, who's a church planter and pastor in Northern Ireland. And his church is at a similar stage to us in terms of uh, growth and, and when they started. And we had a good chat. It's all very encouraging. And I was telling him about the passage I'm going to be looking at right now, uh, this morning. And his first question to me, his first question that he asked when I told him the passage I was going to preach on was this. What are you going to say about the oil? <laughs> and I said to him, I've got no idea. <laughs> um, it's not a closed-handed issue for me. Um, the power is not in the oil. Let me just be really clear about that. As you think about this idea of anointing oil, the power is not in the oil. The power is in prayer. We see this later on from James. And I think what I would say, TJ might disagree with me on this, but I think what I would say is that I'm open to using oil as I'm led um, or as it has been requested by the person receiving prayer. So it may be the case that someone is ill and they would ask for that, and it, it would be their biblical conviction from James 5 that they would want to have oil. Um, interestingly, my friend told me the story of, of when he first started his church plant, and he had this wee old lady who was part of the original team, uh, and she gave him a gift, um, and it was oil from Bethlehem. And it wasn't, it wasn't verbalized exactly like this, but she was implying that this is the real stuff. This came from Bethlehem. So use this, and this has way more power than anything else. And it got me thinking, if I was to pray for someone and I had some oil sitting on my shelf, and one was from Bethlehem, and another one was from, I don't know, Bargeri, then I would always go for one from Bethlehem. I think it would just, in my head, I would think that was, that was probably going to have more power than, than any other one. But I hope you see my point in the midst of all that. Um, how easy it is for us to, to be drawn towards this idea that the oil is superstitious, that the oil carries some kind of power, but it's some kind of magic potion as we think about healing. How easy it is for you and I to become superstitious about the oil when James speaks of, of this here in his passage. So a question for you this morning, why, why would we use oil as we pray for someone to be healed at Denison Baptist Church? Why would we do that? What's well, my conviction? It's not for medicinal purposes. Some commentators would believe that the oil was medicinal. And nor is it some magic potion, as I've pointed out. And as some people in church history have, have came to the conclusion of. But without question, it can be used not as medicine, not as magic, but as a ministry tool. As a ministry tool. So when you look at the use of oil in scripture, more often than not, its purpose is to consecrate. It's to consecrate. And that word consecrate simply means to be set apart. To be set apart. And as an elder consecrates a person who is sick by putting oil on them, what they're doing here is, is simply setting them apart. And not in some kind of supernatural way. Not in some kind of way that is steeped in church tradition and church history. But instead in a way that is deeply pastoral. It's really setting this person apart and allowing that person to realize that in this moment, we are focusing on you and God is focusing on you as we pray for you. What we're saying as we apply oil on a person is that today in this moment with this person, we're going to anoint them as an act of love 
towards them, from us to them and from God to them. In essence, the oil is an outward act pointing towards the inward work of God within the life of the person. And that inward work of God is there, whether they are healed or not healed. I'll just keep coming back to this point. Um, I don't have oil on me today, um, but I'm happy to get some. If someone wants to receive prayer for healing and they would like that, I'd be happy to buy that, to get that um, and to apply that. So that's, that's the role of oil. That's the second component. And it brings us on to our third component for praying for the sick, the role of faith. So the role of elders, the role of oil, and the role of faith. Now let's have a look at the first part of verse 15 again. It's so important we get the wording of what James says here in our passage. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. And you see how definite James is when it comes to the connection between prayer, between faith, prayer, and healing. Faith, prayer, and healing. It says a prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. It doesn't say the prayer of faith should save the sick person and the Lord should raise him up. Nor does it say the prayer of faith might save the sick person and the Lord might raise him up. It's definite. It's guaranteed. So how is it we can accommodate and understand this verse when you and I see so many people who aren't healed? So we read these words, will, it's clear-cut, definite, and yet in our own lives, our own testimony has been one where we don't see people healed. How do we process that? Just as a side note, this is where the prosperity gospel guys get it all wrong because we think that what James says here is carte blanche for them. All they need to do is name it and claim it and the person will be healed. But how pastorally damaging is that for for you to pray for someone, that person then isn't healed. And for you to then say to that person, the reason why you're not healed is because you didn't have enough faith. Not only is that person still in their illness, but they're also condemned. They feel like nothing because it's something wrong with them. And it's unbiblical nonsense. It's not true. Don't ever believe that. This is nothing of what James is getting at. And this is nothing of what we are as a church. The writer to the Hebrews tells us what faith is. Hebrews 11.1, 1, he says this, Now faith is the reality of, of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. Verse 6 of the same chapter, he says this, Now without faith it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And Paul writes in Romans 10.17, So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. And these verses point us to the fact that faith is a work of God in our lives that empowers us to look to Jesus and believe that he is God's son and he has planned for us this amazing future, both in this life and in the life to come. And in one sense, the gift of faith is a gift that we all have. If we have salvation today, then we have faith. We have saving faith. It allows us to be in relationship with him. But in another sense, faith is a gift that is given to someone as a means of edification. We can be blessed with the gift of faith to strengthen us and to strengthen other people around us. And that makes sense as we go back to 1 Corinthians 12, 9. Paul highlights that faith is a gift from God to someone who already has saving faith. So we can have saving faith and then edifying faith on top of that. 1 Corinthians 12, 9, Paul says, to another, speaking of, of those who have faith already, to another faith by the same spirit. 
So we could describe faith in these two different ways. Saving faith and edifying faith. So when James here speaks of a prayer of faith in order to heal, this is a gift of faith that's been given by God to someone as a means of edification, as a means of building them up, and this results in that person being healed. The purpose of that faith is so that they might pray for healing for that person and they might in turn actually be healed as a result. This means that every time someone is healed through prayer, faith is always, always, always involved. God is there at the beginning, God is there in the process, and God is there at the end when the person is healed. And I just want you to understand this morning, as, as I share that, this isn't theory to, to a number of people within the life of the church. Uh, and even last week, uh, I, I prayed for someone that they would be healed. And in the course of a few hours, they were healed completely. Praise God for that. So it's not just some idea that, that we see in Scripture and have no connection to when it comes to ordinary life. This actually happened last Monday. I prayed for someone and they were healed. And I'm so thankful that God allowed that to happen in light of all that we're going to look at. Does that mean that everyone we will pray for will be healed? No. Um, Sam Storms, who's a pastor and author, says this as we think about prayer, faith, and healing. He says this, So don't accept the erroneous idea that if anyone could ever heal, he could always heal. In view of the lingering illness of Epaphroditus, Philippines 2, 25-30, Timothy, 1 Timothy 5, 23, Trophimus, 2 Timothy 4.20, and perhaps Paul himself, 2 Corinthians 12.7-10, Galatians 4.13, it is better to view this gift as a subject to the will of God, not the will of people. A person may be gifted to heal many people, but not all. Another may be gifted to heal only one person at one particular time of one particular disease. So surely, surely, Denison Baptist Church, all of this brings great encouragement and joy as we see how God can work within the context of the local church. The person prayed for is edified. The person praying is edified. And the people watching on are also edified. We are all strengthened in this process of healing. And all glory is brought to him. What a blessing. Amen. So this brings us on to the final component of praying for the sick. Uh, the role of confessing sins the role of confessing sins. And, and let's just remind ourselves of the second part of verse 15 through to 16. James writes this, if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. So James moves from the role of elders to the role of the entire church family. So he starts narrow and then he broadens this idea out of praying for healing for the entire church family. And it's important we understand but in a much bigger global sense, illness, sickness, disease can be traced back to Genesis 3. So in one sense, sin is always connected uh, to illness. We are the product of our ancestors' folly and we have imitated our ancestors by sinning. So we all suffer, we are all sick, we all eventually die. We are broken people in a broken world. But does this mean that every time we're unwell, it's because of a particular sin that we've committed in our lives? Is this what James is getting at here? No. No, James highlights here that the answer is instead sometimes yes, 
Sometimes we are sick because of sin in our lives. It's really important we get that. Sometimes we can overlook that or pretend that's not true, but it is true. Sometimes we are sick because there is sin in our lives. On occasion, I don't know how often that is, only God knows. The reason why we are sick is because of sin in our lives. Sin that ultimately we are not willing to let go. That's the reality. We're holding on to some unconfessed sin and it then physically causes illness. And it's so important for us this morning to understand that when, when James says here, confess sin, confess our sins, we're not confessing our sins to anyone else in the church believing that they are the mediator between us and God. We're not the Catholic Church here. Uh, this is what happens in the Catholic Church. They go to a priest, they confess their sins to the priest, and the priest acts as a mediator. We have a great high priest. His name is Jesus. We go directly to Jesus when we confess our sins. But we are taking time to confess to those who we've sinned against. Those individuals that we have sinned against. And that might be private from one person to another. But it also might be public because sometimes we can sin against an entire body. We can sin against the entire church family. So we can we confess our sins privately, one on one, or one on two or three, or publicly to the entire church family. Ultimately, it's a person who has sinned who is reaching out to the person who has been offended. This is what James means when he says confess your sins. The person who sinned confessing to the person who's been offended. This is the essence of confession to one another. And James says that this plus the prayer for healing is what will, according to the will of God, result in someone else being healed. So when we confess, when we pray for healing, the person will be healed. And again, I say this, I've said this so many times already, but not all the time, according to God's sovereign will. Mottier says this on these verses in James. Uh, the believers whom James brings before us have not met to engage in mutual confession of secret sins. For the confession of such is owed to God alone. Rather, it is because one has sinned against the other and is seeking opportunity in private fellowship to put things right. Or because each has offended the other and they are ready to confess and be reconciled. You kind of know this. I mean, if you ever have a moment where you, you reconcile with someone, is it not the case you experience this? inner peace in your heart your body physically feels better so there is a deep connection between our unconfessed sin and physical ailment and it's not that all sin is connected to ailment and vice versa sometimes that's the case so my encouragement to you this morning and I recognise it's an encouragement that brings quite a bit of a challenge and I recognise all of this is challenging there's so much we've looked at and I also recognise we're only halfway through but don't worry about that my challenge and encouragement to you this morning is this. Who is it that you've offended in your life? Who have you offended in your life? And who is it that you need to go to and confess that sin to? Who have you offended? Who do you need to confess sin to? God sees right into your heart. God knows exactly what's going on. So don't play games with yourself. Don't play games with your health. Don't play games with God. Don't play games with other people. As a church, we exist to live out these biblical principles. And it's a, it all acts as a means of pursuing spiritual health. And if it's connected, sometimes physical health. 
I heard a story last week uh, of a mum um, who was overcome <clears throat> with this severe illness and, and it was so bad that the doctor who was attending to her and supporting her uh, said to her, I've never seen anything like it. It's, it's on a different scale in terms of how physically and mentally sick she was. Uh, and someone arranged for her to meet a friend of hers who was a local pastor. Um, she was at her wit's end. She, she kind of hit a dead end. Didn't know what to do. And so her friend said, speak to this pastor and he'll pray for you. And the pastor was meeting with her, listening to her story. And he very quickly became aware that something else was going on. And he felt prompted by the Spirit. And he didn't want to do this, but God by his Spirit was prompting him. He felt prompted to ask a question about her own family. A question which would show this woman that, that God was speaking to him. And God was speaking through him to her. Because this question he was going to ask was something that no one else knew. Only her mum knew and her daughter knew. So he asked this question about her mum and the sin that she had committed. And it was this horrible secret. There was three generations that had kept this secret. No one else knew about it. And he said to her in that moment, um, if you want the devil to have a foothold in your life, all you have to do is keep a secret. That's all you have to do. And that's true for each one of us. If you want Satan to have a foothold in your life, keep secrets. Keep secrets. And so he led her to a place of confession of sin. And then she wasn't confessing to him. She was confessing to God. She confessed her sin before God. And as she confessed, something happened. She started to be released from this demonic influence that was oppressing her. And the physical illness that she had had so clearly gripped her life was being removed and so much so that when she went back to her doctor her doctor was utterly amazed at what had taken place and so amazed was her non-believing husband that he traveled to meet with his pastor and to ask him what what did you do how did this happen how has she been set free now i don't have an exact science on how any of this works and scripture actually permits us not to have a firm hold on all of this. But the reality is, if you want to have, if you want the devil to have a grip over your life, then live a life of unconfessed sin. And if you find yourself ill, in pain, overcome by some kind of ailment, then my encouragement to you is a safeguard. And this is something that, that I do. If I'm unwell, sometimes I'm not aware. Sometimes we aren't aware of our hidden faults. But I just start confessing sin. Just try, Holy Spirit, reveal the, the ways in which I've fallen short. Show me the areas in my life where unconfessed sin exists. And I don't know if, if that's the reason why I'm ill, but I just do it as a safeguard. And I would encourage you to do the same. So let's be honest, confessing our sins is something that we should do all the time anyway. It's not like we should do it so we can get better. We should always be confessing our sins. So let's be that church family more and more who in humility recognize our sin and confess our sin to one another. And then we see how freeing that is as a result. So I've run out of time this morning. Sorry, guys. So uh, what I'm going to do, um, I'm going to, TJ's going to preach verses 19 to 20 next week. And then the following week, we've got missions week. So hopefully we'll have just the community who've, who we've connected with throughout the week. Uh, come on Sunday, as we've experienced in, in previous years. I'm going to preach the second part of verse 16. 
uh, through to 18 in two weeks' time. So it will be prayer, a praying faith part two. Um, does that make sense? In agreement, we can all vote on that as Baptists. Um, so during our, our missional community this week, I just as we close, I'd said just as we finished, um, it would be very silly for us to, to look at all this, this subject on, on prayer for healing and to not then pray and ask for healing. So the same principle applies to us today. So if you are suffering and you would like prayer, if, if you are in a place where you would like to be healed of something that you're struggling with, then do speak to myself or TJ and we would want to pray for you. We would want to obey the words of James 5. And if you would like to, if you would like us to anoint you with oil, then having understood its purpose biblically, then we can meet you at some point during the week and we can do that. Uh, God heals today, amen. He does heal today. I've seen it firsthand. We as a church have seen it on countless occasions. So take up this opportunity to seek God and to ask that he would do it according to his sovereign will and purpose. And the invitation is there for anyone here this morning who has never experienced the love, mercy, and grace of God. If you've never came to that place of having salvation in him, then, then do speak with us. We would love to pray for you. And we would trust that, that God, in this moment, would save you. He would transform you and renew you so that you become a new creation. The old life is gone. Behold, the new has come. And we also recognize as well that life is difficult. Maybe there's just a situation you're facing, a worry or concern you have. Uh, come to us and seek prayer uh, for that. Um, and as we respond and worship today, we come to the table, as we always do. We come to the table, and I hope we do so with reverence and rejoicing, and we recognize just how good our God is, how faithful he has been. We come to this table, and we celebrate the fact that we are children of God, that we, we have this heavenly Father. On Father's Day, we can worship our heavenly Father and recognize how good he has been to us. It was on the night in which he was betrayed that Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. And in the same way he took the cup and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. So as we take this bread and as we drink this cup, we, proc we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. So all of this is in anticipation of what God has planned for us. So what a joy. So let's respond in these ways. We come to sing. We come to take this bread and cup if we love the Lord Jesus today. We come to receive prayer. We come to have fellowship together as we have tea and coffee. May this be a precious time together. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise you and worship you and recognize how good you are to us. And Lord, we ask that by your spirit, you would take anything of me that, that, that's been said, you would take that and remove that, Lord. Just allow that to be completely forgotten. And Lord, anything that has been of you, through this time in your word, would, we ask that would remain. That would result in seeds being planted in hearts and minds. Transformation taking place by your spirit. Lord, we pray for confession of sin. We pray for boldness to come to TJ and I to ask for prayer for healing. Lord, we know that's a scary thing to do sometimes. And we know that's sometimes even awkward in our context in Scotland in 2023. But Lord, we know how important it is. We know that through that, that simple act, we as a church body will be built up and encouraged. So we pray that there would be a spirit of freedom to do that. Lord, if we are cheerful, enable us to sing. Lord, if we are in trouble, if we're suffering, 
Lord, help us to pray, not just one-off moments of prayer, but continuous prayer. Lord, we commit this word to you and ask that you would bless us and use it to fulfill your plan and purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you guys.